Yo, this is Pastor Tito here, and this is the Revolutionary Podcast. One major way we can learn to live a revolutionary life is to begin to develop a pattern of revolutionary thinking. And specifically what I mean is, how can we revolve our thought process on the Word of God, on Christ, especially when it comes to tackling big decisions and problems? That's not always easy because it's very easy for us to be emotional or react instead of responding in wisdom. But today I get the privilege to be able to share the pulpit with my doctoral mentor, Dr. Alan Ehler from Southeastern University, as he's going to walk us through principles from his book, How to Make Big Decisions Wisely. How do you tackle problems when they come your way? And, and you're going through the book of Acts, and Tito asked me to study and, and share with you from Acts chapter 6. And we're going to look at just a few verses there and, and take a look at the principles. How do you tackle a problem? Because problems will come, and, and you know they're a part of life. Just like we experience today, there's something that goes on. But let's take a look at one of the first problems the early church dealt with. And I think there's principles of how they dealt with it that we can put into practice in our lives wherever we are. So starting in verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this message. Lord, that this church that was seeing growth and great things were happening still ran into problems. And Lord, we run into problems every day. And God, your word gives us a pattern for how to deal with those. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through your word, through your Holy Spirit. Give me the words to speak. Help us to be in tune with you, Lord, so that when we face those challenges, we won't give up hope. We won't become discouraged. But we know through you, we can overcome and we can make good decisions. Help us to do that, Lord, we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, there was a, a day that uh, a few years ago, Kira and I were coming home. By the way, let me introduce my incredible wife to you. This is Kira over here. And I'm blessed also to have my daughter, Hannah, who is... Uh, 
Hannah teaches English in Tokyo, Japan, and she's been with us for a few weeks, eager to get back to Japan. And she's been there for eight and a half years, totally fluent in, in Japanese, and has been doing a great job there. And it's just a joy to have both of them with us and, and to be with you this morning. But Kira and I were heading uh, home from church one day, and we needed to stop by our local Publix and, and buy something. I usually, we're, for some reason, on Sunday afternoons, it's like bananas and salad. We just got to stop and get bananas and salad and go make a quick trip in there before we head home. And we came out the door, walk into our car, and all of a sudden, we hear this car just speeding through the parking lot, and it, and it comes in this older car and just smashed into this nice little uh, Mercedes Benz, and it hit it so hard that the older car ran up and its wheels went off the the windshield of the other car onto the roof. I know how this car did this and it bounced back on the pavement. I'm thinking, what in the world just happened? And that older car just sped out of the parking lot. And, and suddenly everybody was out there. We were just stunned and we we're like, what in the world is going on? And I'm just like, is that guy okay? Or that, who's in the car? We walk over and the guy leans out the window to us and he said, it's okay. Just a mad ex-girlfriend. Hopefully none of you have any relationships like that in your life, right? But you know, problems are a part of life. As unfortunately, you guys got to discover this morning, they're going to happen with us. It can happen in your workplace. It can happen in your education. It can happen in your health. It can happen when your car breaks down, when somebody hits you, when your finances get messed up. I mean, problems just happen. And, and I, I know there's some well-meaning Christian evangelisms, evangelists who want to see people come to Jesus. And they'll say things like, come to Jesus and all your problems will go away. Well, I'm sorry, that's just not in the Bible. And, and look at this passage here. Look at what we see right here. Because it shows us that problems started in a great season. The way Luke wrote verse 1, he says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. Now, anybody ever been in ministry before? Increasing disciples is a good thing. That's the mission of the church. And when pastors get together, they're always excited if my church is growing. I want to share that with somebody. This is a good thing. And sometimes bad things happen when good things happen. Uh, I pastored, I had a privilege of pastoring an incredible church near Seattle, Washington for eight and a half years and our church started to grow and we went to two services and it wasn't long before there were not enough seats in the sanctuary, there were not enough parking places in the parking lot. What were we going to do? And our problem was we did a nine o'clock service and 11 o'clock service and our people did not want to show up early and they didn't want to show up late. They wanted to be at nine or 11 and we found ourselves stuck even though we were growing. And, and sometimes when you find yourself in a really good season, you will have problems that tend to come that, that way. And the question is, what do you do in those situations? Now, I don't know about you, but I was not, I was raised in a church, but I didn't grow up really having a personal relationship with Jesus. It wasn't until I was 18 that I had a radical encounter. Jesus entered my life, never been the same. And, and I was raised to believe that the Bible was the word of God and, and it would give me instructions for life. And I studied the Bible, memorized scripture and found that there were so many things that were very clear about what I needed to do. Uh, is it an option? Should I pay taxes or not? <laughs> yes, I better pay taxes. Is it okay to tell a lie? No, let you know let your yes be yes, your no be no. I mean, there's some things are very clear, but there were a lot of things that were not so clear. When it's time to buy a car, do I buy a Ford, a Chevy, or a Honda? 
I mean, I, I don't have that, that chapter or verse. It doesn't say, you know, auto-purchasing, you know, one verse one. That's not in my Bible. And, and as a, a new Christian, I became a part of a church where people use this really interesting language. And they would say, oh, the Lord told me. I was like, wow, really? Yeah, the Lord told me to go and do this. The Lord told me to go and do that. The Lord told me to go buy that. I'm like, really? Wow, well, I must be a second-class Christian because I'm not hearing the Lord tell me this stuff all the time. Now, I did start, you know, taking time to listen and pray, and occasionally I get some very clear things that I would get clear direction from God on, even coming to Jesus himself the first time, but it was not a regular part of my life. So I, I really, as I grew as a Christian, I, I really devoured books and studying the scripture, things on finding the will of God. What was the will of God like? And as I got to do my master's degree, I started to do a study on the Apostle Paul and how he made decisions in the book of Acts. And I looked, and by that time I was able to read Greek, and I could see that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, was very specific about the words he used for the decisions that Paul made. And we all hear all the supernatural things, like when Paul was on the road to Damascus, you know, he got knocked off his horse and blinded by the light, and Jesus spoke to him. Okay, that's a little bit supernatural right there, no question there. Uh, other times, he had a vision uh, of the man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. Okay, a vision. Okay, that's supernatural. There was something there. We see words of prophecy given. That's when God speaks through one person to give a message to other people. But what I did find was the majority of times, the words that look for decision, a slight majority, they're mentioned, the rational mind thing. He decided. It was a matter of sometimes he wanted to do things. Paul wanted to walk instead of take the boat from Assos to Troas. That's, that, that shows it, it was just simply his desire. So that made me feel a lot better. I mean, if this is the Apostle Paul and he's making most of his decision using his brain, then maybe God isn't speaking to us all the time. And yet, he does speak often. And so it really led to a study. And I started to teach a master's course when I got to Southeastern in 2013. And in fact, Pastor Tito had that class and said, hey, could you come and share a little bit about your book that I wrote to be a part of that class? And, and so when I did study, I integrated all those principles I found from the life of Paul as well as from his own letters, but also other studies that I'd done in my own doctoral study and how the brain makes decisions. And the idea that sometimes we make quick decisions and sometimes we do rational decisions. And the quick decisions are things like, okay, how to turn on a light switch. How many of you think about turning on a light switch? You go in a room and it's dark, you just do it, right? I mean, how many think about taking a breath? You just do it. It's, it's what you could call intuitive. You don't have to rationally think about it. You can do it quickly. But other things, they're going to be tougher decisions. Like you ever go to a strange town you've never been to before and it's dinner time, you're driving down the road, you got to figure out where to eat. Okay, you're going to look. You're going to rationally process. Or if you're like me, I'm going to get out my Yelp app and look for the best unknown one-off place that is in town just because I want to eat something different. You know, whatever you do. But it's a rational brain process to think through those things. And, and, and science shows that we can do both of those. One of the greatest scientists who studied this, he wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. He's from Israel. His name is Daniel Kahneman. And his whole thesis is too many times we use the fast thinking when we need to take more time to really work through the process. We're going to come up with a better answer if we take time to really think through what's going on. So I put all this together. It was going to be a, a, a textbook for that master's class, but my 
my uh, agent, my writer's agent, said, no, 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 you got to make it something that everybody can use. And in fact, um, the publisher, Zondervan, said, yes, please make it something for everybody. So it's a book called How to Make Big Decisions Wisely. And Pastor Tito asked him to bring some. So there's some available in the back. It's listed at 19, but if you'd like one, you can get one for $10 today. Um, and it just boils down all these principles from Scripture, as well as these fields of decision science, and puts them into place in a process that you can use when it's time to make big decisions. Now, most of the decisions you make, it's fine to make them quickly. But this one we're looking here in Acts 6, and I will say it's not talked about in the book because Paul wasn't part of the story yet. But what's interesting is the principles still apply, although some of them are not specifically mentioned here. I'd like for us to take a look at that and see the reality of the situation. Because as we said, there was a real problem. Even though it happened in a good season, the church was growing. Great things were going on. And like I said, sometimes good things can lead to bad problems. And it sounds like they had already dealt with one problem. It, there were widows who were part of the church. And in their culture, and their society, they didn't have social security. And they didn't have retirement programs. And you also had an interesting thing where a lot of times you had middle-aged men marrying younger women, which meant that they died and then those, those women would, ha would be widowed. And, and they'd be, you know, have still 15 years, 20, 25 years of life left without a source of income. And the church recognized that problem and said, hey, we want to take care of our women. We want to do that. That's a good thing, right? They had recognized the problem. They had responded to the problem. They were taking care of things. Good things were going on. In fact, we'll see back in chapter 4, and you guys may have already looked over this one, that it said that there was no need among them. They were helping the problem. There was not a needy person among them, said in verse 34. They were taking care of all of their needs until, until, the church grew so much. You had two different groups of people who were part of the congregation. Now notice, it says Hellenists. Your Bible translation may say Greek-speaking Jews. Uh, that's the implication. But we know they weren't just Jewish. They, we know there were some who were proselytes. That is, they came to faith in Christ who were, had a Greek background. And, and you know, I didn't even think about it, but the tabernacle is an example of this. You guys are worshiping, singing in English here at 11 o'clock. You, you will have people who are part of your church who will be singing songs in Spanish over in the next building. And that can happen. Now, by the grace of God, you're not experiencing what they were experiencing here. At least I pray that's not the case. But notice, this a real interesting word. You guys want to learn a fun word today? Okay, and you may have heard this in your like school. Okay, it's called onomatopoeia. You ever heard that before? Onomatopoeia. It means the word sounds like what it is. So in Greek, in Greek, here's an onomatopoeia right there. It says a complaint. Okay, here's the Greek word. Gogosmos. Can you say that? Say that with me. Gogosmos. Okay, so think about what it sounds like. Gogosmos, 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 Okay, that's the grumbling that was going on, and that's what it is. So they were grumbling, and you've got the Greek-speaking Jews who were viewed themselves as somehow second-class citizens because most of the people were Hebrews. Most of the people were from Jerusalem and Judea, and they grew up speaking Hebrew and Aramaic, and they were the cool in crowd, and who are we? We're out here, and when it's dinner time, and the widows are there, and our Greek-speaking widows, because they don't speak Hebrew, whenever they say lunch time they don't understand and so they're still sitting around the table lunch time all the hebrew girls are going up there and they're getting all their food and going through the line and by the time the greek speaking jews go up to the food line there's nothing left they're not getting enough to eat and it wasn't fair and it was a divide on 
dare we say, a racial issue? At the very least, a language issue. And there was a split in the church. And there was a perception that there was wrong being done. And you think about that. Think about what that would have meant. This young church, we don't know exactly how old it was, but it wasn't more than just a few years old. And great things are going on. But what would a split have done at that point in time? You know, sometimes when their grumbling happens, it's so easy for those who, who have the power and the influence to say, yeah, whatever, go away, you deal with it yourself. But the church leaders recognize we have a problem, we have a challenge that needs to be dealt with. And so they dealt with it because had they not, had they let things go, here's probably what would have happened. Number one, you would have had needs going unmet. What was true of them in chapter four, if there was not a needy person among them, would no longer be true. Those widows who spoke Greek would go hungry. And that probably would have led to a bitterness and a resentment inside the church for not only the widows, but their children and their people. And there would have been a divide and a division that would have split the congregation. Now, we at Southeastern University are, uh, trace our roots to what we call the Pentecostal movement that was birthed in Azusa Street in a, a livery stable in Los Angeles in 1906. I don't know if you've heard the story or not, but it was started by a one-eyed black man named William Seymour. And he had heard this message of the baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, from, from a white pastor named Charles Parham down in Houston, Texas. And, and William Seymour had a call to ministry and a lady who pastored a church out in Los Angeles invited him to come out and share about this fullness of the working of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And he came out and shared the message. Only problem was some people in her church didn't like it. So they locked the door on him, kicked him out. But there was some people in the church said, no, no, we want you to come to our house. They started a prayer meeting in their home. Well, they outgrew that one. Then they moved to another home that you can still see in Los Angeles, 214 Bonnie Bray Street. And the group came out and they experienced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in their house and soon the crowds were so big that the porch of the house actually collapsed and they said we've got to move to a bigger place so they made the decision starting on april 15th 1906 to meet in that building that we just saw there but it had been a livery stable you know what that means horses stayed there can you imagine what it'd be like can you imagine if horses had been inside this room today what would it smell like what did it feel like? I mean, so they say, we got to get this place cleaned up. So they actually hired some people, including some Mexicans, to come in and clean it. Well, the, the, the church had already been a unique mix. You have a black pastor and some black people and some white people and now some Mexicans who are being involved. It was unusual in 1906, almost unheard of. In fact, the LA Times, and when they moved in there just a few days later and the outpouring happened, they, they talked about how strange it was. They were not happy with it being such a racial integrated experience and, and one of the writers uh, 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 who his name is Frank Bartleman wrote the history of Azusa Street said the color line was washed in the blood because they were such an example of unity and really what heaven looks like because every tribe every nation every tongue will be together and that's the way it's supposed to be. And, and in fact, what's interesting is the first person to get baptized in the Holy Spirit in actually in the building on Azusa Street was a Mexican person who was there to clean up. And one of the black ladies said, hey, have you heard about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Like, no, no, okay, it's time for you. Boom, there it was right there. And got the outpouring. I mean, so it was racially integrated from day one. But then the problem was there was a challenge for leadership and a white woman named Florence Crawford stole the mailing list for the apostolic faith newspaper 
They'd been responsible for seeing tens of thousands of people come through. They had entire movements that traced the roots, like our Assemblies of God, Church of God, Pentecostal Holiness, uh, Church of God in Christ, the Foursquare Church, all trace their roots right there. And, and, and it's uh, and, and wonderful what happened there in those days. What sad was the division happened less than three years later. And unfortunately, William Seymour died a poor man. And, and the church never really outgrew that building, but it should have because so much of what he had done. And you can see the leaders there represent unity in spite of diversity. And what's sad is we could look here in Acts chapter 6 and we could see a church that did it the right way. And as many things that were right about the early Pentecostal movement, this was one thing we didn't get right. And I'm grateful that we're getting it right today and you're letting me be here and share with you. And we can recognize that we are part of a much greater body of Christ. And, and so when we take a look at this situation, they, if they had not taken time to recognize they had a problem that needed to be dealt with, if they had not been wise with how they handled the problem, the church would have weakened, its witness would have weakened, and it may not have, have ever gone to the place where it was but they did follow the process now I want to share with you the process that I put together for my book and, and it's really drawn more from other biblical passages like I said it, we see the principles here and we'll see how they come up but it's four steps first one is to read the backstory that means to see okay what is going on what's the situation what do I need to change what must never change that's that's kind of the backstory the second step is to catch God's story and we always want to look at first uh, what does the Bible say is our final authority next is the Holy Spirit saying anything and then thirdly is is the greater church the, the Christian community speaking to me the third step is to take it to crafting a new story. Uh, we can enter, leave the second step with a very clear direction from God. Yes, we know what God says. We can end, I'm not sure, but maybe I know. And a lot of times we'll end up, well, I, I don't have anything clear right now. And, and we can work through these processes. And the crafting a new story step is built on all this whole field of, of decision science. And, it, and it, there's several sub-steps there that can lead us to the place of making a decision. And then once we make the decision, we put together a plan and we tell the new story. We live it out, determine who needs to be a part of it, and put it into practice. So let's see how they handled that here today. So number one, the backstory. The backstory on their situation. And we always want to start by asking the author for help. That is the author of all our stories. We want to start by praying. James 1 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously. And we certainly want to hear from God. What, what do you want to do? Please give us wisdom as we tackle this situation. And it doesn't record in Acts 6 that they prayed specifically about this. It does say, and throughout the book of Acts, prayer was a part of the life of the early church. So, so we can just take that for granted that they were doing that also taking a look at the situation what was the situation well it's clear Luke lays it out for us the Greek speaking widows were getting overlooked in the distribution of food they were not getting it fair and those people were angry so there was a split starting to occur on linguistic lines and possibly racial lines so there was some stuff that needed to be resolved and worked out okay and 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 it as well there was a situation there that we need to be finding uh, what was going on, why it should change. Well, we want to be sure that we can get it to a place where everybody's getting fed and it's equal 
and there's no longer a division. That's what needs to change. We need to be sure there's fairness, needs are met, and we have unity in the body of Christ. But also, what must never change? Notice what's said in verse 1. The church was growing. We don't want to stop the growth of the church. The mission of the church needs to continue. So that's the backstory. Backstory. How can we get everybody fed evenly, unity in the church, without squelching the growth that we're seeing? All right, so then we go to step two. We want to, again, catch God's story, study scripture. There's no record of that. Or, and notice also there's no di- record of divine direction this time. Sometimes we do say that the Holy Spirit spoke through prophecy, through vision, through dreams. There's no record of that here. And it doesn't say exactly how they did it, but notice what we can tell is that there were a group of leaders there. In verse two, it talks about um, the 12 summoned. That is, there were 12 people who got together to make the decision about what would be done. And that gets us to stage step three. That is to craft a new story. We don't know if there was divine direction or not, but it seems that they worked through a process to really decide how's the best way we can do that. And so when it comes to crafting a new story... And only do this on the really big decisions that that are going to have a lot of consequence that you don't have a clear direction of what to do. You want to start by increasing the number of options you're willing to consider. Most of the time, we get in trouble when we can see this or that, A or B. You know, and we get stuck with just one or the other. And sometimes neither one of them are the best decision. Sometimes neither one of them are good decisions. And we need to take time to increase the number of things we're considering. And, and one of the ways we can do that is through something, probably the most common one is called brainstorming. Anybody ever done that before? Get a group of people in the room, you come up with ideas. And there's several other ideas I share in the book that can be helpful for working through that. And one of the reasons we want to do that is that because sometimes the best decision is something you cannot envision yet. And that's what it seems like happened to them there. Because notice, I I can just imagine them being in the room. You got the 12 disciples in the room and they're going through, hey guys, we got a problem here. Man, look at this. I mean, the Greek speaking Jews, their, their widows are getting overlooked in the distribution of the food and they're getting angry. They're complaining. Now notice, none of the 12 were Greek speaking Jews. They were all Hebrews. They were all raised in Galilee. They all spoke Aramaic and, and, and so they were not part of that group. Yet they were the ones who had the authority given by Jesus to make the decision about this situation. So when they came together, they had to recognize their limitations. Now, my guess is when the people who were complaining went to them may have said something like this. Anybody ever have been in charge of a group before? Maybe a group at church or your workplace, something like that. And, and everybody comes, you need to solve this problem. You need to take care of this. You're the boss. You take care of this. So I get to see them, hey, Peter, John, Paul, um, Peter, you guys, you guys need to feed the widows. They're not getting fed. It's up to you. Feed the widows. And it's quite often that people will come to you as the leader saying, you need to do this. You need to take care of the problem. But the problem was... If they had done that, that meant they would have to stop doing something else. Let me just say this is a great lesson of leadership. Anybody want to be a leader someday? If if you do, just realize you don't have to do everything everybody wants you to do. In fact, you cannot do everything everybody wants you to do. And part of being a leader is recognizing that and finding somebody else who can do what needs to be done. 
But if they had done, think about what would have happened. If they would have said, oh, you're right, I'm sorry, okay, we'll start serving food. And those guys had been there, and they'd have, been, they'd have looked great in their little chef half serving food in the lunch line as the ladies coming through and like, oh, Peter, so good to see you. Oh, John, oh, James, oh, Andrew, oh, Philip. You know, they would have been all excited about that because, oh, look, our apostles feeding us. That's so sweet and wonderful. But the problem is that had been four hours out of their day. They would have robbed them from doing their primary mission. But it was an option. And it put it down there. Consider it there. Well, what's another option? Another option is, well, we just don't do anything about it. It's their problem. Let them take care of it on their own. And inequality would have continued. It would have resulted in division of the church would have been completely unhealthy. Or maybe they just said, you know what? It's a problem here. We'll just stop serving food to everyone. In such a case, then everyone went hungry. And not just, okay, it's equal now. But then you've got the Hebrew Jews, uh, uh, their widows are not eating, and the Greek widows are not eating. That's not a good win. Not a good win any way around. So another thing they could have done is said, okay, we're going to solve it for you. We're going to send our guys over there, and they're going to serve your widows. We're going to do it our way. Another thing they could have done would have said, okay, it's your problem. You guys take up a collection. You guys start doing your own service. Take care of that. All those would have been possible solutions. And what to do when you've considered all the different ideas is to work through them. Now you want to reduce them to a manageable number. That is, get rid of all the ones that aren't going to work. Well, one thing we're not going to do is not feed widows. They need the food. We, we can do that. Let's scratch that. Let's take that one off the list. But also, then begin to evaluate all of the remaining options. And as you do that, consider... Consider adding, even as you go, as you evaluate, looking at the different ideas, what could be there? Suppose that they've been going through that. Well, the apostles could serve the widows. Yeah, but that means that we would not be doing the other things. I'm not sure that's a good idea. Inequality continues. We'll feed ours and let them. No, we don't like that's not a good idea. That's off the list. Stop serving everybody. We already said that's off the list. We could decide for them. Yeah. We could let them take care of the problem themselves. Yeah. What if we work together? but let them be a part of the solution. What if we recognize them as a group? What if we invite them to pick people to do the serving, but we'll bless them? And by doing that, we are working together. We are honoring them. We are recognizing their valuable contribution. We will lay hands on them so everyone will know they are serving under our authority. It will give leaders a chance to emerge and to show up and serve who otherwise might not have done that. Their widows will be served at the same level as our widows. The problem can be solved. What do you think, guys? We're going to do this? And they said, yes, let's do it. So then we see that in verse 2, the 12 summoned, notice the wording, the full number of the disciples. That means they brought everybody in. Everybody heard the answer. We've got it figured out. And guess what? We're not going to give you the answer. It is not right. First of all, what you ask us to do is not a good option. And here's why. We're not just telling you no. It's not that we're selfish. It's not that we think we're above that. It's that we've got a different mission here. It is not right that we apostles should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Notice, they're very specific about the criteria. They gave them a number. They gave them specific criteria, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, having a good reputation. Three things. People you like, who you speak well of, we know they've been filled with the Holy Spirit. We know they're wise. We will put them in charge of this duty 
And we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And by doing that, look at what happened. The word pleased everyone. What they said pleased the whole gathering. And then notice what happens. Then they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. So that was their plan. And that was it. And so they told the new story. They went, that's the fourth step of the process, told the people, enacted the plan, and it went through. And as a part of that, by them doing the appointing in verse 6, they set them before the apostles. They prayed, laid hands on them, that got recognition. And what did it lead to? What was the outcome? And once you've told the new story, you always want to take some time. Is it working? Do we need to adjust what we're doing? And the answer is no, it's working well. The word of God continued to increase. So the church growth continued. The apostles continued to do what they were going to do. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly. So so the word of God, that is the the message of the, the, the gospel went out and continued to grow. And the number of believers continued to grow. The church increased in its influence. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. In other words, even people of influence, the level of influence of the church in Jerusalem just continued to grow. Great things were happening because they had tackled the problem in a way of wisdom. And notice what else? Do you notice some things of the names of those seven people? You recognize some of those names? Stephen and Philip? Guess what? Philip will show up in the next chapter as being one who took the gospel into Samaria, saw lots and lots of people saved. We know him as Philip the Evangelist. He led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. He gave uh, the message of uh, some prophecies later on. His daughters became prophets. He had an immense influence in the early church. And then Stephen, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, he's the one who powerfully defended the gospel saw many many people come to faith in christ and became the first martyr of the church we know from tradition some of the others as well became incredible leaders nicanor was a jew from the island of cyprus he returned to his native island he died a martyr there in 76 after planting churches all over the island Timon, yes, not from Lion King, but Timon uh, was supposedly a Hellenized Jew. He spoke, again, Greek language. It was there. He went and became bishop in the city of uh, Basra in Syria. He was the leader of the church in that region. Parmenas uh, led churches all throughout what is today Turkey, and then he settled down in Macedonia, northern Greece today. He died in Philippi in the year 98, uh, again, as a martyr, but after serving Jesus and leading many, many churches. Nicholas, it says he was a proselyte from Antioch. You may know that city Antioch itself became the most influential city of Christianity after Jerusalem, starting in Acts chapter 10. He was probably part of connecting the church there back to his home city all these people the one maybe unexpected blessing of this was by the disciples of choosing to appoint allow those people to appoint their own leaders gave them a platform that launched their careers later to become influential leaders in the history of the church so I don't know what your situation is that you're going to face and I'd love to tell you come to Jesus and all your problems will go away Can I say that come to Jesus and he'll be with you in your problems? 
Come to Jesus and you will have the Holy Spirit partner you in problems. Come to Jesus, you have access in that promise that James gave us. If any of us lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously. And God can help us and God can assist us. But sometimes when we run into those situations, we can fall back to these patterns that God has given us. And and sometimes the, the, the best solution may not be immediately clear. But if we tackle them with God's help, we can see great things come out of that. We can begin to see revolutionary results when we revolve our thought process even on Christ himself. I mean, just look at this. Even these, these four elements of reading the backstory, catching God's story, crafting a new one, and then telling the story. What those four principles do is it gives us intentional moments to pause and to think and invite the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to speak into the circumstance. Because without these patterns, we're going to look for shortcuts. And uh, I don't know about you, but a lot of times, there's a lot of times that I've made very quick decisions that haven't ended up great. And now we're talking about big decisions. And that requires us to learn to pause, to think, ponder, and to really process it. And these are biblical principles that God has given us because, again, we know that there's nothing too big for him to do. For us, it's different. And that's why it's important for us to learn to revolve our thoughts, our heart, our mind, everything on Christ at the center so he can guide us into all wisdom, into all truth. And I pray, like Dr. Ely was saying, if you have any big decisions that you need to make, I pray that the Holy Spirit may inspire you, may enlighten you, and help you as you pause to truly think. And if you haven't made the decision to follow Jesus, give your life to him today.